Welcome to another episode of the Just a Couple Dudes podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Eric Flatiger, and I wanted to give a quick introduction to this episode. We had a really amazing, really brilliant guest. He's a doctor named Dr. Robert Roberts. He's a cardiologist, MD. He was actually, he led the cardiology department at Baylor College of Medicine for 23 years. He's into genealogy, molecular biology. He's actually a professor at the University of Arizona Medical School or the School of Medicine, I'm sorry. Uh, He actually worked for NASA as well. He was a lead cardiologist for NASA for some time, just over a decade. He actually gave the okay for astronaut John Glenn to go into space. So he's a really cool guy, and he talks a lot about coronary artery disease and heart health, stuff like that, but we also get into stuff about COVID-19 and the coronavirus, and he's done so many amazing things, and we get into that as well on the podcast. He's trained more than 400 cardiologists. He's co-discovered more than 60 genes related to coronary artery disease. He's actually saved the prince of Saudi Arabia's life. I mean, this guy is just a very wonderful, very sweet, well-spoken man, and we just had the absolute blast talking to him and we just felt so honored that he would come on to the just a couple dudes podcast so frank anthony and i are super ecstatic and i'm i think this is a really good episode for you guys to take a listen to so sit back and relax and enjoy this podcast um, i really appreciate everybody who's listening and continuing to listen we have some really big things coming your way as well so i just wanted to say thank you from the bottom of my heart i think you're in for a treat so uh take care everybody thanks The Just a Couple Dudes Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Eric Flatiger. And I'm also one of your hosts, Anthony the Cold Train Cole. And then there's Frank. Frank the Tank Lewandowski. <laughs> All three of us are in the house today. Today's going to be a little different, isn't it? It is. We have a very special guest today. It's somebody that we actually got through Anthony. Uh, who got through somebody else, so there's that three degrees of relation. Um, Anthony, do you want to talk a little bit about who this is? Yeah, sure. So uh, he is a cardiologist, but more into research and genetics tied into cardiology. Um, a very big name in cardiology. He's helped establish um, departments of uh, cardiology throughout the world. In fact, he helped start a school in Japan, and uh, he's a big name in medicine, and uh, we're excited to get to talk to him about uh, his outlook on the future of coronary artery disease, um, genetics tied to, you know, atrial fibrillation and other heart diseases, and then also uh, probably going to talk to him about some coronavirus. Oh yeah, we might as well talk to him about the the COVID-19. I mean, yeah, everyone, what is it, 50% of the world is quarantined today, so. Yep. It affects everyone. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, so so uh, we are doing our first time where we're going to do a phone interview with him. Yeah, so so everybody knows we're actually going to call in uh, to Dr. Roberts, and he's going to be talking to us via speakerphone into our mic. So it's not going to be, you know, the same quality as if he was sitting here, but yeah, we did a, little, a couple little test runs, and it sounds pretty good. So just Keep that in mind as uh, as you're listening. Yeah, and we're lucky to have him on. So oh, we're so lucky. Oh, we're lucky. We're just we're just some nobodies. I mean, we I am a dean. We do mm-hmm. have a nurse and a nurse practitioner here, but yeah, but we're still just a couple dudes. But we're so just a couple dudes. When this yeah. guy's talking, it's definitely gonna be a bit over our heads. But yeah, and you know, 
part of this podcast is we take all these different subjects and we bring them down to like the bro, the layman. But sometimes it's nice to take the high level people and bring them to our little just a couple dudes table. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, so let's. We let's ready call to call him? him? Let's call yeah, let's him. Right. We're going to call him. Um, right. So let's just wait on the line. And, you, and you'll take control. You got this one, Frank? I got it from here. Ooh, we're right. ringing. And uh, just make sure we'll listen. We might have to change it as it, as it goes. Hello. Hi, is this Dr. Roberts? Speaking. Hello, sir. Good, this is Frank. We got Frank, Eric, okay. and... Okay, how are you? Good, sir. How have you been? Good. I want to give you uh, a little introduction for our viewers and listeners, okay? So, we have Dr. Robert Roberts, MD, father and husband, a cardiologist and a professor at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, a department chair of the International Society for cardiovascular translational research. He has some highlights as of training more than 400 cardiologists. He personally saved the prince of Saudi Arabia's life as the main cardiologist. He co-discovered more than 60 genes related to coronary artery disease, which is the number one cause of death is heart disease. Uh, he consulted NASA, and he personally cleared John Glenn of NASA to go into space. That all sound correct to you, uh, Dr. Roberts? Is anything yes. you need to add? Um, that's quite a no, CV right there. fine with me, yes. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to add that you've been kind of involved in more recently? No, I, I think the major thing that we're working on now is to try and be one of the first in the world to test for um, coronary artery disease using the new genes whereby we can predict who is at risk and this is a an important challenge I think and one that we hope to launch here in the Phoenix area once the uh, coronavirus begins to cool off. Uh, this genetic, uh, I guess I should back off and say that it's well recognized for about more than 50 years that risk for heart disease, which is the number one killer as you indicated, uh, is partly genetic and partly environmental. About 50% of your risk for heart disease is due to your genes. And so by identifying most of those genes, we now have them on a chip and it will be possible to use that chip to predict your risk for heart disease. Now this is important We've shown that if you have heart disease and have what's called common risk factors such as increased blood pressure, high cholesterol, or diabetes, or, or also sedentary way of life, don't exercise or smoke, these are the known risk factors for heart disease. We know that if you decrease that risk by decreasing those risk factors, in the United States, we have been able to decrease the incidence of heart disease by about 50% in the last 30 years. Now that we have the genetic risk factors, or not all of them, but most of them, this gives us a new approach. Up until now, most of our efforts have been on what we call secondary prevention of heart disease. In other words, you've got one of those known risk factors and you decrease it. Or you've had heart disease and we look for those risk factors and decrease them. 
knowing the genetic risk gives us a new ball game. It, because your genetic risk is the same the day you're born as the day you die, therefore you don't need to get heart disease to know what your risk is. The risk can be determined at birth or any time thereafter. That means we can do what we would refer to as primary prevention. For example, we know that heart disease is the number one killer in both men and women all over the world now, not just in the Western world. We also know that most women get heart disease about 10 years later than men. And this is because they are protected during their premenopausal period this also means that now that we have the genetic means and can predict and risk stratify those people, it should be possible in premenopausal women, probably in their 40s or early 50s, to do this test to find out who's at risk and to take action to lower their risk factors such that one could predict most of the disease and prevent it before it happens rather than waiting for it to happen. And so I think this is a whole new approach that we think over the next five to 10 years will really enable a paradigm shift in prevention of heart disease, certainly both in men and females, but obviously our first approach is to take advantage of the fact that asymptomatic females in their 40s, if they get the genetic risk tests done and find that they are at high risk, one can initiate prevention before they get the disease. Uh, certainly one can do the same in men, but we expect we'd have to do it much earlier, probably in their 20s or 30s. But this would be possible with uh, the genetic risks. Now, in cardiology, and most of the public already know that our main drug that we use to prevent heart disease or to prevent a second attack is what's referred to as a statin. There's a, mm -hmm. several of these drugs and what they do is decrease your plasma LDL cholesterol, which is the bad cholesterol as known in the public. And it has been very, very effective. Now, one might ask the question, if it's still effective, why not give it to everyone because statin is a very safe drug. It's been given now to really millions and millions of people all over the world. The side effects are probably in the range of one or two percent and they're all reversible in essence once it's stopped. Here's the problem. In fact, this study has been done by Aller and his colleagues for the American Heart Association and they showed what would it do if we gave everybody a statin? Uh, in the case of men, say at age 45, in the case of females, everybody over 55. And they found, of course, by doing so, that about 28 million more people would be taking statin therapy. Yes, it's true that statin therapy has minimal side effects, but here's the story. Yes, heart disease is the number one killer in the world, but if you're an American and you're going to live a normal lifespan, 50% of the people will live to experience a cardiac event, but the other 50% do not. Even though they may have increased cholesterol, the average cholesterol in a female in her 40s in this country today 
is 137. The level we'd like to have it is 70. So that means practically everyone has an elevated cholesterol, but only 50% will benefit from lowering their cholesterol. That means that if we had a technique that could pick up and risk stratify for those who are going to benefit, regardless of their cholesterol, this is the group you'd want to treat. We believe that the genetic test will do this, certainly will pick up most of those people that are at risk, and therefore it represents both cost-effective and I think also in terms of side effect, very efficient way to do it. The statin drugs, at least two or three of them are now generic and therefore cost only a few cents, so it is possible for everyone to afford this. Secondly, the genetic test can be done. We'll probably prefer to do it on a blood sample, but we can also do it on a swab uh, so that you don't have to take blood. The, uh, that being possible from your throat as a swab makes it means you could do the test anywhere in the world, even countries, and then most countries in the world today. So we do believe that we are entering a new era in which primary prevention could very well uh, significantly attenuate, if not eliminate, this disease. It has been postulated by investigators that heart disease will be pretty well wiped out by the end of this century. I'm not sure if that's true, but if we use the genetic testing, we certainly Oops, and, sorry, I think we lost sir, Yeah. Um, can you still hear us, Dr. Roberts? Yes. Yes. So, so how did you... last 10 seconds of you. Yeah, are you able to repeat the last 10 seconds? Okay, it has been postulated by several investigators and cardiologists that this is the last century for heart disease. Wow. Because That's we incredible. know that heart disease is preventable because we have shown that by treating the known risk factors that we've decreased the incidence in this country by 50%. Now that we have identified most of the genetic risk factors as well, therefore putting the two together gives us the option. And since genetic risk is not dependent on age, as the others are, then one can determine his risk any time after birth and initiate preventive measures accordingly. Thus, we feel I'm not sure that we will eliminate the disease, but I would think before the end of this century, instead of being number one, it'll probably be in the 10th or 15th. Wow. wow. That would be incredible. That is amazing. Uh, before we get to that, were there any uh, obstacles that your research might run into? Uh, especially because- uh, Yes, there are going to be some obstacles because people are not used to genes. First of all, a lot of people including some of my physician colleagues, believe that if it's in the genes, you can't do anything about it. Of course, that's a myth. Of course, that's nonsense. Uh, Let me explain why that is nonsense. (laughs) The genes don't do anything. They stay into the central nucleus of your cell. They send out a message to make a protein. It's the protein that does the work. In the case, for example, of cholesterol, one of the genes that makes that protein so you can synthesize cholesterol 
what you do is the drug was targeted to inhibit that protein so that you can't make cholesterol. So this is, of course, the same thing we will do with any other product that is a product of the genes. You hit the protein, which then t eliminates the effect of the gene or the genetic predisposition. So we treat it in the same way as we would treat anything else. Secondly, people are concerned about any test that's going to look at their genes because they're worried about privacy. Will insurance companies or anything get hold of it? In this country, uh, George Bush Jr. brought in a law, or Senator Slaughter did during his time, that prohibits any insurance company, medical insurance company, from using your genes as a means of your premium. So that would be illegal. However, it did not prevent people from using it for life insurance. So that still exists as a problem. So people are concerned about their privacy in that issue. Sure. We believe we will overcome that because one, we're not just testing your genes to see if you are at risk but we're also offering you treatment to prevent it. So I'm hoping that's a new thing. Most of the genetic studies that I've done over the last 30 years was looking for genes. But once we found them, there wasn't much we could do. There were certain things. But in this case, though, we have already proven that if you're at high risk, we can prevent it. And three studies have been published already to show that. The first one was in the New England Journal of Medicine about a year and a half ago, in which they looked at over 40,000 cases. And what they did is they then did the genetic testing to show those were at high risk, and the, those that had a high genetic score had about fourfold greater incidence of heart disease. They then randomized them to what was called a favorable lifestyle and an unfavorable lifestyle. The favorable lifestyle meant they didn't smoke. Two, they exercised at least 20 to 60 minutes a week. Three, they had a diet low in meat, high in fruit and vegetables. And basically were concerned about their health. As opposed to unfavorable lifestyle, they had two of those bad things. Either they smoked, or they ate a lot of meat, or they were diabetic. And what they found that the people who were at high risk, as determined by the genetic tests, had a 50% reduction in cardiac events that were on the favorable diet versus the unfavorable. So a 50% reduction, showing that when you use the genetic tests, you detect those at high risk, and you treat them by a change in lifestyle, you can decrease cardiac event by 50%. The second proof that we can do that is a lot of clinical trials were done starting in 1990 using the statins, showing that if they lowered your LDL cholesterol, they induced about a reduction in cardiac events and death. Those trials, uh, people went back and then genotyped the blood of those people which are still kept, and then looked at what the genetic risk score in those that were at high cardiac events versus low cardiac events. 
and show that the high genetic score correlated with the people who had the highest incidence of heart disease. Furthermore, in those trials, the people who had the highest risks on the genetic score were the same group who had the marked reduction by statin therapy, indicating that using the genetic risk score, we could detect those who are at high risk and also those who would benefit most from statin therapy. Now, there have been a couple of other studies that all in keeping with this, indicating then that using the genetic risk score, you can determine who is at risk and you can treat it by using statins or using lifestyle changes, etc. Now, I might add the risk factors we have been using since the 1960s, like smoking, etc. Most of those risk factors are age dependent. Your cholesterol when you're born is about 20 or 30, your LDL cholesterol. By the time you get into your third generation, it's around 60 or 70. By the fourth generation, your cholesterol 30 to 150. So it increases with age. That means you can't predict as well when you're young what you're going to get. You're better at predicting once they get an increased cholesterol. Age itself is a major determiner of cardiac disease. And as I indicated, you live long enough, 50% of the people will get a cardiac event. The advantage to the genetic testing with the DNA is, of course, you, it doesn't change. Your DNA doesn't change. So I can give you a score of, when, of whether you're at high or low risk for the day you're born just as I can at age 40 or age 80, so forth. So bottom line is that all of this should really put us in a position in the near future to do primary prevention, and instead of preventing a second heart attack, puts us in to really decrease what we would refer to as the prevalence of this disease by preventing the disease from developing. And know at this time that is quite feasible to using both genetic testing in combination with conventional one can reasonably expect that this disease will decrease 70 to 80 percent over the next decade or two wow that's yeah it's pretty unbelievable um now in addition to that the genetic factors also give us another opportunity we found out that while cholesterol is the main culprit that causes coronary artery disease and heart attacks and angina and sudden cardiac death, but it's not the only one. Several of these genetic risk factors have nothing to do with cholesterol, blood pressure, or smoking, or diabetes. Thus, they are mediating their risk by mechanisms at this moment we do not know. Identifying those mechanisms, as certainly is one of the hot things to be doing now, will give us a new target to develop novel drugs that will inhibit that genetic risk factor, just as we found with cholesterol, as we found with smoking, etc. So I do think that the combination of being able to test for it early before you get the disease, and secondly, the development of new drugs targeted to those will add another punch, I think, in terms of really markedly. For example, when I was an intern 
in the 60s, the number of people that died from heart disease in the United States was over 900,000. Today, that number is down to less than 500,000. Wow. Just on the basis of treating those seven known conventional risk factors. So I think you can see where using comprehensive testing, both genetic and conventional, plus our new therapies, I think there's every reason to be hopeful that this disease will truly be conquered before the end of this century. Dr. Roberts, I think something that's really exciting too is that the therapy is going to be more targeted. So like yes. you said, that some people may not respond to the statin or may not that might not be the main risk factor for them. But for someone that is unaware, we will know based on the genetics and the, and the compilation of the testing. So I think that's really exciting. So we are certainly looking forward to laying this out uh, here in Phoenix. We have gotten IRB approval right now because of the coronavirus, of course, we can't start the study, but hopefully within a couple of months that will be possible. My next question, uh, you, were, you were talking about the statin therapy and starting fairly young, like you said, as soon as uh, maybe 20s and 30s for men, is yes. that correct? And I, I know a lot of people, a lot of the public's concern is they don't want to take medications. They almost, they fear it. They fear the, the side effects that you've been brought up. And even though the side effects are minimal, uh, people just have a fear of taking medication. Could you maybe talk about what some of the side effects are of statins and why you should, why it's a bigger fear of heart disease than actually taking a statin drug? You're absolutely right. I mean, the fact that people don't want to take drugs and do not take drugs is evidenced by the fact that at the moment it is estimated in this country that only about 38% of the people who have been diagnosed with increased plasma cholesterol are in fact taking drugs to lower it. So clearly they don't want to take drugs. Within that range, females are more likely to take the drugs than males. Males still think that it's not a manly thing if they've got to take medicine. Mm -hmm. My yep. grandpa's... I hear you. Yeah, my grandpa's this is, just this like is that. still a big issue and uh, certainly one that, um, you know, creates a barrier for all of us. At the same time, we feel strongly, though, that part of that will be with better education. And I think with, certainly today, the uh, social media, we are hoping that if I can tell you you're at risk early in the age and tell you that we have a drug with minimal side effects, Instead of 38% taking it, I do think, you know, we should be able to double that over the next three to five years. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. But you're right. Those obstacles do exist. Now, there are also a few other issues, I mean, that the public do not know. And I would say, you know, most physicians it don't know it or don't have the time to educate them. And I'll give you five things about cholesterol. That's well-known facts, but I think most people don't appreciate. One, every cell in your body makes its own cholesterol when it needs it. Number two, if it makes a little more than it needs, 
The cell cannot break down cholesterol. It doesn't have the machinery to do so. So it must get the cholesterol out of the cell into the bloodstream. It is then taken back to the liver where it's broken down to bile pigments and excreted into feces. Liver cells are the only cells that can break down cholesterol. That also means a third fact. When you measure cholesterol in the blood, you are measuring the extra cholesterol that's made that you don't need. So how low do you want to lower cholesterol? People have been always, over the last 30 years, they have lowered the standards of clinical recommendations, you know, from 130 down, that's LDL cholesterol, down to 70 now. We have lots of clinical trials now to show that 60 is better than 70, 50 is better than 60, and more recently, a large trial showing 30 is better than 50. And I'm sure that our standards are going to fall out over the next 10 years or so to be around 30 or 40. Why? Because that's the level that you are born with, more or less. And so we add to our styles and everything done this. But So the fourth thing is, what controls the level of cholesterol in your blood? And it's about 70% controlled by your genes. We identified over 95 genes that regulate. But my point to you is that for most people, just changing diet is probably not going to decrease your LDL cholesterol down to the levels we want it because our Western diet is such that if you take any part of it, you're likely to increase it. And you're obligated almost most of the time to take a drug such as that. And so my point to you is then, knowing all of that and knowing what you are born with, if you go today to the Amazon and look at some of the primitive tribes that are still living out in the wild, their LDL cholesterol is between 55 and 65. And of course, they are known for the fact that they sell on their heart disease. So the evidence that you should lower your cholesterol and do so early if you want to prevent it from happening is pretty overwhelming. And I would think that this kind of education to a large public will make them more compliant and take a statin therapy. Now, it may be available. There's all sorts of you know, drugs being developed to improve on that, to make it more convenient. You can also take the one that you get injected every six to eight weeks rather than taking it by mouth, etc., etc. And I'm sure that over the next four or five years, there'll be new therapies. But I think we have to emphasize to the world, because the Western world used to be the only one where heart disease is number one. It's now the number one killer in low, middle, and high-income countries. So all over the world today, the number one killer is heart disease. It used to be infection, but now it is heart disease. And into the pandemic of heart disease, you'll have to decrease it by primary prevention rather than after an event has occurred. 
Wow, that's exciting. That's exciting news to hear. And in you to to reiterate what you said, you predict that by the next decade, within the next ten years, we would begin these therapies and and being this proactive. Or when is oh, it that I you think predict? We will do the, I think we're going to be proactive with the genetic testing. Don't last any mother another year or two because the data is overwhelming. I should emphasize that we've now used that test in over one million people, and it's been shown to be superior to conventional risk factors and shown to be really uh, having an outstanding record in recognizing people at high risk. If you look at most drugs we use today, they've been done in one or two clinical trials of probably 10 to 20,000. Here you're looking at a test that's been validated in over 1 million people. And it also has been validated that you can treat, as I've indicated to you, by change lifestyle or take. I, so I think that it will be incorporated into clinical practice somewhere in the next three or four years, and I, if not soon, because the data to me is, not just to me, but the investigators, people in the field feel it's very compelling and keeping in mind preventing the number one killer is a strong force for healthcare providers including our insurance and payers absolutely yeah, that's but because it is genetic you know a lot of people are not aware of it yet or number two they are worried about it because it is genetic it always and most physicians in fact, a poll was done in the U.S. I think three or four years ago now, and they asked physicians, you know, these were general practitioners, two specialists, how many of them would feel competent in handling uh, genetics of a disorder such as heart disease? And only 15% thought they would. How much the is genetics? Part, you know, is oh. The other problem we will face, an obstacle in doing this, is... We don't have very many uh, genetic practitioners, genetic counselors. We need about 100,000, and there's only about 15,000 available. Hmm. Wow. Is genetics going to be more implemented in medicine, in medical schools, or how is it implemented now? Well, I think um, what's happening in the medical schools today Certainly, in many schools, they learn a lot about DNA. They learn about genetics. But by the time they finish medical school and start internship, in by and large, they forget about it. Because it is still not paid for by insurance that much, although rare uh, genetic disorders are, like, you know, the cause football players are dropped in with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. That is funded today already, but common diseases such as coronary disease, most residents and interns don't think of it in the same thing, and so it is still not carried forward for that reason. I think that will change and will have to change, and is changing, but again, very slowly. Um, it is not part of the, when I lecture to medical, for example, uh, you know, that what they want to know is how much of this is going to be on the boards? How much is this important to me? How much of this can I practice? 
And that gives you an idea that they don't yet perceive genetics as something they can use to treat disorders, even though it is being treated everywhere. Now, if you were in oncology, you probably have a different approach because pretty well all of cancer today is being treated on the basis of genetics. And that's more understandable because cancer, by definition, is a disease of defective DNA. You can't get cancer unless your DNA is defective in some way. So that you know, it's much closer at hand. But most of the treatments we use today in cancer are dictated by your genes. And that's why a lot of different fields of medicine are going to be using genetics too, right? Like being able yes. to understand what type of foods people can tolerate, what's the optimal diet. Uh, I mean, it's not, I mean, this is really interesting in cardiology, but it's going to affect all of medicine. Right. It is truly now, I think, you know, affecting all of medicine, but certainly it is not as incorporated into the menu as much as it will need to be. Uh, and I think also, you have to recognize that there is still a significant educational component that has to be put out there for people to truly appreciate it. But I think this will change, and the other reason why it will change, a lot of the genetics that I went through in getting into the field is because you had to start from somewhere. That genetics has really moved along today. The technology is taken care of, et cetera, et cetera. And for example, the new tests you see on television today for the coronavirus, whereby you can take a swab, put it into a machine, close the cover, and get a result in 45 minutes. It's, of course, all because of genetics. They look at the genome. The coronavirus is an RNA virus that has about a around 30,000 base pairs, and you can simply do what's called PCR, polymerase chain reaction. You can determine if the sequence in that sample is the sequence that corresponds to the sequence in the genome of the virus, and it can be done in about 30 or 40 minutes, and it simply says yes or no. You don't need a physician. The nurse, even the secretary, can take that sample put it in the machine at the desk at point of care and give you the answer in 45 minutes. You don't need to know very much about what happens in between. Whereas 30 years ago, you probably <clears throat> understand much more about polymerase chain reactions and so forth. You don't need to know any of that today. It's like any other test. You poke it in there and you get a result. I'm hoping because of if there's some good that can come from COVID-19 is people are becoming aware of these silent killers, uh, you know, through disease. And I'm hoping that people can, you know, understand that genetics, if you're predisposed to certain genes or to certain factors. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I agree with you. One thing that's going to be obvious, which has never been obvious before, because none of us lived through the plague of 2000, uh, 1918 and what have you. But what, one thing is clear to us today, that the world can be shut down now by a bug that nobody is not big enough for anyone to see, and it really can shut down our society. Mm -hmm. Secondly, you can see how effective they've done this in China to close it off. They haven't had new cases now for several days. So it indicates that prevention 
and containment of the virus is feasible, it also emphasizes that you really need to think about your health because those things can truly put you at peril and you have no control over them. And in a global world, this can happen again and again unless we do something about it. So I would think all of that will carry over to some extent into diseases such as, you know, heart disease, diabetes, and obesity, whereby people will be reminded and hopefully will uh, comply with some of the measures that are recommended to prevent the development of those diseases. So I certainly think this is reminded of that. Now it's often that in five or ten years, nothing happens and everything is going well, they've forgotten about it again. But I do think that, uh, as you say, some good will become of it. Now the other part is that they'll probably have a vaccine, at least for this one, and they'll probably look harder at other coronaviruses to see if they can get vaccines for them before they develop, which is possible. And certainly we, we know that it's highly likely that there will be a vaccine to coronavirus. It'll probably take a year or more, but we already know that the antibodies to SARS, which was a coronavirus, mm-hmm. are not disease. And so it's to this particular virus, and so they are certainly on the foundation on which one can develop a vaccine. But, you know, you have to test it out for safety, you have to taste test it out for efficacy, you need large numbers, so no matter how fast you go, it would be unreasonable to think that we'll have a vaccine uh, within the next seven or eight months, but I think within the next year is quite possible. Sir, do you have a do you have a pulse on people at the epicenters in the U.S.? Like, do you know physicians that are on the front lines right now in New York or California or Washington? I I do not know specifically, except that at the NIH, it would be the best place to call at the infectious disease there and at CDC because they will certainly have people who are working on the front lines. Mm-hmm. And the other point I would make that most of these viruses originate in the Far East or in the Southeast. And this one obviously originated in China. Today, China is a far more sophisticated scientific country. They are working very rapidly on the virus and they have the technology, they have the expertise. Their genomic center in Beijing is as good as anything. And you can see where it may be very effective in developing a vaccine as soon as possible. And they are ahead of at least by a couple of months. So it's not a country that even 20 years ago, China would have not contributed to that effort. But now you have the expertise. I mean, China is now the second largest economy in the world and is moving very fast in technology. It used to be like 20th in publications is now in the top five. Uh, I go to China all the time, have been this year for obvious reasons, the lecture, and you know, the progress that's been made in China over the last few years is just incredible. And so I do think that will contribute to a more rapid development of a vaccine, the fact that it's happening in a country that is already very skilled scientifically in doing so. 
Yes, absolutely. And uh, just to kind of say, I'm hoping with this whole thing going on, the COVID-19, that people are just more receptive to to more preventative measures, you know, like you're speaking of when it comes to genetics and when it comes to disease prevention. So if there is any good that can come from this, you know, hopefully that's that, you know, hopefully we'll have a, a brighter future because people have a more of an understanding because they've experienced, uh, you know, this COVID-19 and living through it. So hopefully when it comes to medicine and coming to prevention that, this will be a lot better for your studies and also for other diseases and other illnesses. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. I mean, I do think that if you look at the situation today, just here in Phoenix, you know, there's no, but not many people on the streets at night. There's already been a profound effect in terms of people trying to socially distance themselves. And many people are staying at home rather than coming to work. So I do think that it is, as being effective, is it as effective as we'd like it to be or could be? I suspect the answer is no. When you look at the kids who are on spring break in Miami on the beaches and that. But in general, I think the response has been very good. I mean, uh, everything here in this city is pretty well closed. Uh, other than grocery stores and drugstores, etc. So I do think that people are paying attention. I'm assuming part of that is because of the social media. Part of that is because everybody's got one of those devices, either a TV or an iPhone or something, that uh, is bombarding them to do so. And I, I do think it's been you know, relatively effective. My hope is because I think there are three things we all should remember. One, this is a virus which has no treatment. We have no specific drug to treat this. Two, at this stage, we do not have a vaccine. Three, the only way that we can prevent this disease is is through isolation. I think another big area to learn from is how ill-equipped our hospitals are. And how variation there is between. Is he, is he still on? I know. Oh, I think, I think so. we just lost Dang. him. Oh, did we lose him? Yeah. We did. Oh, we'll, we'll have, have to get we'll Dr. Roberts a call back. We did really good. Um, yeah, I think I'll call him right now. Yeah, no, I think um, this is definitely going to wildly impact healthcare. Like how the hospitals run, how we stockpile, or actually don't stockpile oh. stuff. Hi, Dr. Roberts, can you hear us? Yeah, I can hear you now. I guess we got cut off. Is yes, right? sorry about that. Even with technology, we That's still okay. have issues. Um, okay. One one thing I wanted to talk about, though, is what do you think about the hospitals and how ill-equipped uh, we are, like, regards to PPE uh, stocking and, you know, how it's not very consistent across the nation? Um, do you think that's something we can learn from? Well, I mean, I, I think it's very clear that we never thought this would happen to us. And consequently, preparation for it was less than adequate. There's no question, I think, and I hope, that when this is over with, we will recognize that for the, not just the far future, but the very near future, we'll have to stockpile and be ready for such an emergency. Another virus can come in one year or in five years or 10 years, but it's unlikely not to come. We mm-hmm. know that at this moment. and. The only way to be prepared is to stockpile, and as soon as it happens, 
assume the worst is going to happen and roll in the big guns. I don't see any other alternative, although I feel that the public, when we look at the response of the public, I suspect most people feel that way. Mm-hmm. They feel that next time we should be better prepared. I suspect we will, unless it's a long, long time. If it's you know, 15 or 20 years before it happens again, in general, our society tends to forget about it and it could creep up on us suddenly again. But I do feel that both the federal, state, and city governments are probably going to remember this for some time. Years from now, or three years from now, if you ask, are those things like PPE and masks available? There's a million somewhere in waiting. I really do. That's good, and that's a, I, I think so too. I think we're about to experience a more receptive public because they've now experienced it. Um, my next question was going to be about what what do you predict? How are we in the middle of this coronavirus when it comes to the U.S.? Or how, what what are your predictions within the next six months? I mean, I I you know I'm going to predict as a cardiologist, as a geneticist, so that I'm not infectious disease, but if you look at what we know about China, and just a couple of facts. So China had its first run-in with this in December. It didn't really get going for a few weeks, then it got going. And now they have seen over 80,000 cases, and what they report is that 80% of the people had mild to moderate disease, marked by fever and dry cough, 13% as severe symptoms, and 6% at life-threatening things of either respiratory failure, septic shock, or heart failure. Now, if you look at the overall mortality, that it was about 3%. But if you look at the mortality in the 20% who were either over the age of 80 or had heart disease or had high blood pressure or diabetes, The mortality in that group was 21%. They also learned then that containing 50 million people today, now it's several days, it's about five days I think at least now, they have not had a single new case except for ones that have been brought in by transportation. So it tells us pretty well that most people can do very well at home. Number two, if you try to contain it, you can, and very quickly. So they've seen their peak curve uh, about two or three weeks ago. I would think for us, it's now, I think, the moment we are, uh, what, 64,000. I, I expect that after three weeks, we should see a peak somewhere probably around eighty to 90,000. And then I hope doing we'll start to see a decrease. Because most of that increase is going to be not new cases necessarily, but simply because they're tested, right? Yeah, that's how it's going to work. Go by the Chinese. We don't expect to see our peak. So I would think that... You know, you know what, Dr. I'm Roberts, could you repeat that? Long since over. I would think that we will reach our peak be at least two or three more weeks. And I would think that by June, 
we will have seen a very good story and it'll be completely free of new cases. Yeah, let's hope for that. Yeah. So if we reach this uh, our peak of cases in the next two to three weeks, do you have any predictions about how long uh, the U.S. will be under isolation or, or the whole world? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I think, every, first of all, if we reach our peak, I'm hoping that people will be uh, inspired by that and recognize that we are going the other way. Number two, that decline can be increased the same way as we're predicting that we will do what we're doing now. If we stop doing what we're doing now, I think, you know, we will slow that peak. Now, I do think that after two or three weeks, there will be some return of people to certain jobs. We have to get the economy going as well, but the economy cannot take priority over the treatment of this disease because the two are interlinked. If you don't prevent the disease, if you don't get the disease down, the economy will be worse, not better. So there's, I don't see the point in, you know, saying we have to increase the economy early. Mm-hmm. I think the earlier we get the disease under control, the faster the economy will come back. Mm-hmm. If we don't correlate it well, we might regret what we're doing. So I, I do feel that population will be inspired if we reach a peak start to see it come down the question will be in those areas such as new york and state of washington and to a lesser extent perhaps in california if we don't overload the hospitals if we can meet the demand for equipment and ventilators and that will be certainly a further i think inspiration to all of us if they get overloaded and we have to have too many makeshift hospitals or ship them out of state to other hospitals. That's going to be very demoralizing, I think. Oh, absolutely. So I like how you brought up how the economy, it is important, though. You know, I think it's easy as a healthcare provider to, to say we need to isolate and, and think of that. But the economy is being hit and it's affecting everyone. So I think just acknowledging it really helps people, too, because not everyone is involved in healthcare. So I like how you brought that up. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think, you know, there's no doubt about it. We all recognize that the economy is tied to health care in the same way that health care is tied to a good economy. Mm-hmm. And I think both of them. And I think that, you know, based on what we know from China, most people at 14 days from onset are free of spreading the virus. Not everyone, but almost all of them are. So I do think that that's a good thing. So if we could really keep this home thing going for another two or three weeks, I think we would have made a major impact on the spread. No, I absolutely. But you know, agree. if we do it too soon, because remember, we fourteen days to really be effective. And sir, just kind of like wrapping up overall with you, I mean, you've been a very accomplished man. You're a good father, good husband. What advice do you have to like young medical students or just kind of the younger generation? Well, I mean, I still think that, you know, the medical profession at all levels is a very important profession. I know that society sometimes look at us, whether you 
or a nurse practitioner or a physician or a technician and think of it in different ways and they think of physicians as primarily wanting to make money. But I have to tell you that it is a very rewarding profession. I think most of us go into it with the hope that we can make a difference. And I think secondly, that the medical profession, as indeed over the years to all of its technologies and expertise involved, have really made a difference in this world because we certainly have, uh, like infections used to be the number one killer, they have been significantly put down to be third or fourth, mainly because of antibiotics, etc., but also because of good care. And I think lastly, it's a long profession to train for, but it is worth it. And I think that people who think that medicine will be a series of robots really have to stop and think differently. Robots don't think for themselves. Uh, they certainly can work well for us, and they will, and they'll certainly do a lot of the jobs that we didn't have to do manually, and some of it they'll do better. But you still will have to have... Medicine will always, to some extent, be an art and not just a science. And after all, our interaction socially with the patient, if you think about it, the interactions between our nurses and our patients is probably equally important as any of the medicines or procedures we do. And they certainly expect to get that. They won't get it from a robot. And I hope that we as human beings will not become roboticized to that extent. I do think there's a bright future out there because we have far more to work with today. And as you know, we have prolonged life significantly the average lifespan of a female in 1900 in this country was 37 years. The average lifespan of a female 100 years later at 2000 was doubled and was in the 80s. It is expected that lifespan will double again in this century. So by the end of this century, the, the lifespan will be 140 to 150. Wow. That will only be we continue to develop new therapies and new ways of preventing disease. Just treating them won't be enough. We have to prevent the prevalence. Absolutely. Well, I know I uh, speak for the medical community, and I speak, uh, I just want to thank you for your research. And uh, I mean, my, my grandfather has had 24 stents. Uh, wow. But, yeah, exactly. And he is still alive today. And uh, I know a lot of that is to do with some of the research that you have done. I know you've written many textbooks. And uh, I just wanted to personally thank you as a medical professional and also as a grandson uh, for your work. I just... Thank you very much. I do appreciate the opportunity. And uh, really, it was delightful. And uh, hopefully, we can get together again sometime in the future. Yeah, we would love to hear from you again, sir. I mean, um, we're just really humbled to have you on the show. And, you know, this is just a couple of dudes. We're in the North Phoenix area, and we like to spread our message about sharing the impact people have on their lives, especially good men, because I think there's not a big voice for good men. And, and we're just very thankful to have you on. Well, how do I get to listen? Is this, uh, how can I get access to it? 
Oh, sir, it'll be uh, on iTunes or Podbean free, and you just search J-A-K-D or just a couple dudes with K for a couple. And we'll get your uh, contact information like email or, or something like that. Uh, and Anthony if you would send that to me, that'd be fine. Thank yeah. you. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you. You have a good Enjoy. day. Enjoy. Stay oh. safe now. Y'all right. too. Yeah. Will do. All right, bye. Ooh, that was good, Dr. Roberts. So, Dr. Robert Roberts on the Just a Couple Dudes show. Yeah. Hopefully, everyone, um, I mean, hopefully, everyone can understand. I know, I mean, he's a really brilliant man. So, when they start talking, um, it's easy for some people probably to get lost. But I don't know. I think it was really awesome. And even then, I feel like he still spoke in a lot of good laymen, you know? Well, absolutely. He presented the facts very, uh, it was very easy to understand. Yeah, you can tell he talks. Uh, he was very positive, too. Oh, yeah. So mm-hmm. I really liked how he brought up the economy. Yeah. Even though that everyone says shelter in place, which is great, and we're doing a good job. He was very positive about it. He's positive about how, you know, cardiac disease is going to be on the way down. Mm-hmm. You know, everything he brought up. He brought up also, I hear a lot of physicians say they wouldn't want their kids to be providers. Mm-hmm. you know in the medical community and then he said he would like he's mm-hmm. very happy about the profession he chose he's very happy about all the people that go into it and it's very rewarding and they're doing it for the right reasons and he sounds very passionate about the the topic you know oh. super oh, yeah. passionate super vibrant good energy yeah he made a point that you you can just tell that he he isn't in, in it for the money he's in yeah. it because he's passionate about it and because of his passion uh, he's made a huge difference in medicine oh, and, yeah. and in our lives that we don't even realize that he's made an impact in our lives. And it just shows the importance of passion and finding your passion in life. Yeah, 100%. Oh. Gosh, hopefully we get him. We'll have to find another good topic for him to talk about. Oh, yeah. He was hopefully a great Hopefully post-COVID. Yeah, yeah, post-COVID. I know. <laughs> post-COVID. Hopefully we'll see that peak in the next yeah. three weeks. Yeah. yeah. So we'll see. Yeah. Some of the stats right now, just going over real quick. Yeah. Maricopa County, as of today, is 251 cases, three deaths, uh, 13 in the ICU, and 35 hospitalized. The What's US, today's date, Frank? Uh, we are. Uh, the 25th? The 25th. March 25th, March 25th, 2020. The U.S. total cases are 54,453. Total deaths are 737. And with more testing coming available, especially with drive throughs we have four drive throughs in the Phoenix uh, Tucson area, we're going to start seeing numbers tick way up because, again, a lot of things are going to be about testing and availability. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I was actually, uh, I got to see my first testing center yesterday. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, I was over at Banner Corporate uh, Center and they have a testing center there. And there was already, this was yesterday about 10 a.m., so the 24th at about 10 a.m., uh, there was a line of cars about 30 long waiting Dang. to get tested. And what's crazy is this is the beginning for Phoenix, I feel Yeah, like. it really is. I, yeah. I think he's very spot on when he says the numbers, obviously just because people are getting tested, are going to rise and rise and rise over the next probably like three weeks to a month. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure about this whole, we'll be back by Easter. That coming out of the White House, a lot of them talking about. Oh, no. I'm like, I don't know. It's a little, it's like two weeks. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. That's a little ambitious. Yeah. Well, right now, it's like the calm before the storm in Arizona. So good things we have is, one, is the temperature's rising. Second is we're not as congested as a California and New York. Mm. We don't have the international travel as well. So hopefully we're kind of like an inner state of a hurricane. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not Florida right on the edge. It's going to get hit real hard. We're kind of further inland. 
Mm. So we're going to get kind of like a category four storm, you know, Tropical compared to storm. Yeah. So yeah, it won't, yeah, it definitely won't be New York, you mm-hmm. know, but, uh, we, I mean, we went from, I think we've almost doubled in cases in just the last two, three days. So yeah, it oh, definitely yeah. will, the number will get up there. Absolutely. Yeah. And for everyone in education, I've got a running bet with everyone. They all, all these teachers I talk to other people, they think after the, the schools are officially closed until Friday, April 10th. Everyone thinks we're coming back. I'm like, we're not coming back. Mm-mm. So I'm sorry. I know you want to get those kids back in the classroom. It's not going to happen. Well, Dr. Roberts made a good point. We can't cut corners no. in returning, you know, getting back to work, getting kids back in schools. Because if we do cut corners, then this disease will make even a harder impact uh, by spreading the disease, but also on the economy. Yeah. So I, th- I do think it's right. And what he said, it's hard. But I think he's right in saying, let's not cut corners. Let's, let's stay in isolation. Yeah. Let's wait till we get that $1,200 check. Yeah, right. Let's be <laughs> nice. Let's yeah. be nice to each other. Yeah. Um, I went to the grocery store today. It's not as bad as it was a week ago Absolutely. or two weeks ago. So Positive. I think things are already getting a little bit better. Um, this gives you time to self-reflect. Uh, I'm doing at-home workouts, yep. which has actually been kind of nice to mix up my routine instead of going to the gym. Yeah. Uh, you know, it kind of humbles you a little bit just to enjoy some time you have. Um, realize how busy we are on a normal day-to-day. Yep. Um, so I mean, I there are a bunch overall, of overall. I know we've lost like twenty points of GDP or whatever, but I think for us as people, it's good to f- to literally force us to slow down, mm-hmm. take you know? a step back, spend more time with your family, yeah, you know, and appreciate appreciate them, and listen to a podcast, appreciate listen our to a podcast, yeah, exactly, listen to a podcast about. Dude, even to, I learned something today. I did not know. Well, I didn't know like almost everything he was saying, but <laughs> uh, one of the big things is. I have not heard very many people talk about your genetics being tied to... I mean, like, you hear people Mm -hmm. randomly say, like, oh, yeah, it's genetics, but not, you know, a medical professional. Not in such depth. And and in in such depth, depth, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, this was exciting. This was good. And I'm I'm excited for the future of health and the future of health uh, in the U.S. I'm excited for the future of this podcast. Yeah, just a couple dudes. Yeah. Let's hear it for Dr. Robert Dr. Roberts. Robert Roberts. I have a quick quote. Incredible man. Like let's let's yeah, do it. Let's do it with the quote like we usually do. Yeah. So the quote is, everyone thinks of changing the world, but no one thinks of changing himself. Oh, so applicable. Oh, yeah. I like right? it. So we're always trying to think about changing others, but really we should self-reflect and change ourselves. No. Right? Starting the man in the yeah. mirror. Yeah, or woman. Or woman, absolutely. Or whoever. Or whoever, whoever you, you want to be in these right. days. Well, I'm signing off. I don't know about you guys. Yeah, it's been good. I'm spent. Again, I'm Eric Flatiger. And I'm Anthony Cole. And Frank Lewandowski. And we're just a couple dudes. Thank you, everybody.